been asked to read this morning the, the book of Jonah. In your pew Bibles, it will be number 816, page 816. The text is the first chapter of Jonah, the first nine verses. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up in the unto, and rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was likened to be broken. When the mariners were afraid and cried unto every man unto his God, and cast forth the wares that were in the ship unto the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah went down into the sides of the sea, and he lay and was fast asleep. So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper, arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us, and we perish, perisheth not. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they said unto every one of his fellows, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know for whom <clears throat> came this evil upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. <clears throat> And then, then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us? What is thine occupation, and whence comest thou? And what is, the, what is thy country, and of what people art thou? And he said unto them, I am an Hebrew, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us again, we welcome you. Thank you so much for being with us. Are you selfish? Or are you selfless? That really is an issue that goes to the heart. And the truth is, so many problems in life, we think they're surface problems, but the reality is, the problem is a problem of the heart. And so actually, the problem of the heart ought to be the very home of God. The very place God ought to dwell is within the depths of our being, and our life ought to be hid in Him. You know, selfishness is not something, I suppose, we have to illustrate. Most of us experience it, and wrestle with it day in and day out. Scotty Pippen 
is one that is remembered as one of the best 50 basketball players to ever play. Now, there's a lot of argument about that because a lot of people say that the only reason he played on six championship teams is because he played along with Michael Jordan. But if you remember in 1993 and 94, there was a lot of critics that were saying, this is the point, this is the chance, uh, this is the opportunity that it can be proven that he's not a great basketball player because now Michael has retired, what will they do this year? Well, he won 55 games leading the team forward. The critics began to eat their words. They went into postseason play, and against the Knicks, they were two games down. And what happened in that third game is probably remembered more than any one play that he ever made, and it was one thing that he didn't do. 1.8 seconds, they call a timeout. They're down. Phil Jackson draws up a play for Tony Kukoc. You see, Scottie Pippen was to be the decoy. It was important that he was there. And when it resumed play, he refused to enter the floor. He was so offended that the coach did not call upon him to shoot the winning basket. He set himself on the bench. And all of America was stunned at that kind of selfishness. Scottie Pippen wasn't the only one that's wrestled with selfishness. When 792 couples were surveyed and they were asked to give the grievances of their spouses, the number one grievance that wives listed of their spouses was selfishness. Selfishness is at the heart in some form or fashion of every divorce where someone said, I don't want God's will to be done. I don't want what is best for this family. I want my will to be done. Every relationship that we're a part of that is strained and hurting, selfishness is at the heart of that strain. Every time you and I struggle in our relationship with God, selfishness is at the heart of that struggle in our relationship with God. You see, the fact is... I need to realize this morning how important the heart is and how important it is for me to realize that I cannot put myself at the center of my heart and expect a great and a marvelous spiritual life. Hold your finger here in, in Jonah, and let's come back there in just a moment. But if you will, turn with me over to Matthew, the 16th chapter. It's page 866 in your pew Bibles. We'll also have it on the screen here. I want us to begin by seeing how important selfish, selflessness is. Because the very fact that one cannot come to Jesus unless they're willing to practice this ought to bring it to the reality that I have to get this one right. What we're discussing this morning isn't some kind of option. It isn't something that we say, you know, you really ought to think about this. This is something that we have to say, we have to get this one right or we'll miss it all. Jesus introduces once Peter confesses him as the son of the living God. Look there in verse 18 what he says as he introduces the idea of the church here in this particular paragraph. He says in 18, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And if you remember in Acts the 20th chapter, in verse 28, Paul spoke and described what the cost of the church would be. Remember he said that it would be purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so it's interesting to hear Jesus mentions the fact, I want to build my church. But then, beginning in the next paragraph, 21 and following, he describes to them what the cost of that church would be. Let's read further. 
For that time, or from that time, Jesus began to show to His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took Him aside. Now imagine this. Peter's calling Him aside and he says to Him, Far be it from you, Lord, that this should not happen to you. And he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Some of the strongest words that were ever spoken by Jesus that's recorded in the Scriptures to a follower of His were spoken not only to a follower, a disciple, but was spoken to an apostle. And not only an apostle, but one of the inner circle. Not only one of the inner circle, but the leader of the inner circle. Jesus spoke some of the harshest words to one of His very best friends on this earth. What is it that would stir Jesus in that way? Jesus is prophesying to them. He's trying to prepare them that He has come to do God's will. And God's will is that He would give His life so that the church could be purchased and and souls could be redeemed. And when Peter hears this, Peter's thinking from a selfish standpoint. I don't want my friend to have to go through that. I don't want to have to endure watching my friend go through that. And so he, of all things, begins to rebuke Jesus. And Jesus calls him Satan. Jesus identifies him as an offense to him. And then Jesus brings it down to the heart when he says, you're mindful. You see, the spiritual heart is the mind. He says, you are mindful. It's the same word in Colossians, the first chapter, Colossians, the third chapter, the first and second verse, where he says, set your affections on things above, not on things on this earth. You see, that is exactly what Jesus was saying He was not doing here in Matthew, the 16th chapter. He was saying to Peter, you've set your mind, you've set your affections on pleasing men instead of the things that please God. In other words, Jesus wasn't saying here, hey, emotionally this is what I want to do. Emotionally, I can't wait to die on the cross. He's saying this is what I must do as a selfless follower of of God the Father. It's easy for you and I to become selfish. But to become a follower of Jesus, we see this call, this cry for selflessness. Let's read the next few verses. Verse 24, 25, and 26. Then Jesus said to His disciples, notice that word, then. In other words, He's just had this episode with Peter. Then Jesus said to His disciples, If anyone desires to come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. For whosoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus turns from talking privately with Peter, apparently to the entire group. And he says, you want to follow me? Let's think about what it really means to be unselfish. Deny yourself. Take up the cross. What was the cross? The cross was that which lives were taken, crucifixion. 
You see, somebody sometimes will point to a, a banged-up knee and they'll say, yeah, that's my cross I have to bear every day. In a real strange twist, that might could be a cross that you have to bear, but that's probably not the way this Scripture is used. This Scripture is talking about every day when you and I are willing to get up and say, I'm going to crucify self-will to live out God's will. And so whatever challenges, whatever opportunities, whatever peer pressure we have, the idea is every day getting up out of bed and saying, Lord, I crucify self-will today. I take up my cross and I want to follow you. Deny self, take up the cross and follow you. And someone says, I'm not willing to lose my self-will. Okay, we'll lose our soul then. Someone else says, okay, I will follow Jesus. I'll lose my self-will. And the Lord says, then you can find your soul. Well, what if someone makes a poor exchange? They say, I won't become selfless. And so I give my soul away. But then later we wake up and say, I want my soul back. I want to live again spiritually. I want hope of eternal life. What can a man do to exchange his soul? How much money does it take to buy your soul back from Satan? How many good deeds do you have to merit to get your soul back from Satan? What can you do to get your soul back from Satan? And you can't on your own. If you leave Christ out of the equation, you can't. And so how does someone purchase back their soul from Satan? It's the same way as we came initially. That is, deny self, take up the cross, and follow the Lord. You mean selfish, selflessness is at the heart of it all. Every bit of it. Every day of our lives. You know, there was a young girl that wrote a journal. She wrote several journals. And in her journals, it described through her high school years the battles that she went through day in and day out living for the Lord. To her understanding of living for the Lord, she was very, very determined and she was willing to make tremendous sacrifices to live for God. In 1998, this is one of Rachel Joy's journal entries, and you have most of it there. And I would like for you to see just a daily application of what it means to get up today, deny self, and live for the Lord. In other words, striving to find the Lord's will in everything. She says, Dear God, I know that at first I was really jealous of, and it's blanked out, it was uh, uh, someone she went to school with. She's sweet, pretty, popular, And she got the major part for the drama. But now, I only admire those qualities. You have blessed her. Notice how she's changing the way she's thinking as she's becoming unselfish. You have blessed her with gifts and talents, and I can only be happy for her. Thank you for giving her the lead role in the drama. It has taught me that I won't always be in the spotlight. I am thankful to have a chance to be in the drama at all. Tomorrow, I have an audition. I'm not expecting to get a part. If I don't, I promise not to criticize or become jealous of those who make it. If I do get a part, I promise not to let it go to my head. And I will remember to thank Thee for the ability, the strength, courage, and talent You bless me. I don't want to be successful without You, God. I can't be successful without You, God. And she signs it, her first and middle name, Rachel Joy. Rachel Joy Scott, on April 20th, 
1999, a senior in high school, was eating lunch just outside the cafeteria when two of her peers came up to the school in Columbine and began shooting. She was shot twice in the leg and once in the torso. She began to crawl, hoping to find safety. The gunman walked away only seconds later to return. Eyewitnesses say that Harris walked up to her, holding her up by her hair, with a gun pointed in her face, says, Do you still believe in God? And she said, You know I do. And he shot her. Just before he said the words, Go be with him. There was another girl in the library that this story was very similar. As she was asked, do you believe in Jesus? And Casey simply said, yes. And she too was shot. Both of these parents have written books and both of them draw a powerful conclusion. It was on that day of April 20th, 1999, that so many marveled at the courage of both of their daughters to state the fact that they believed in Jesus, even with guns pointed to their face. But what both of these mothers wanted everyone to realize, and that's why the journals are being publicized, as one mother described it, what people need to see is not the yes that was said on April the 20th, but they need to see the yes that was said every day of those girls' lives before that, day in and day out, month in and month out, and year in and year out. Friends, when we see great actions, when we see courageous events, it's not because someone got up one morning and decided to just live for God that one day. But it's the result of a life that is set upon God that gets up every day for an extended period of time and says, Lord, I want to deny myself today. I want to take up your cross today, Lord. I crucify my will and I live out your will. And Lord, I have my eyes set upon you. My affection is on things above. I like the quote of H.P. Lydon as he summarizes this thought. He says, what we do upon some great occasion will probably depend on what we already are. And what we are will be the result of previous years of self-discipline. The story of Jonah is one of the best stories in all of the Bible where in just a quick reading, we can see chapter 1, a story of selfishness. Chapter 2, a turn of events, a life turned around because he became selfless. We have just had read for us so capably the text of Jonah, the first chapter, at least a portion of the first chapter. I want you to notice that in the screen here, we're not going to go through and reread this text again, but do you notice the underlying words? In other words, this morning, I want you to grasp this. If you would have been Jonah, or if you would have been one standing by, physically watching the events unfold in Jonah's life, what would you have thought the problem was? In other words, as we see there in verse 4, we see that there was a mighty tempest blowing. We see that there was a terrible storm on the surface. It was so bad that at the end of the verse it says that the ship was breaking up. And notice it doesn't say that the passengers were afraid or the tourists were afraid. It says that the mariners, in other words, here are experienced boatmen. 
They have probably spent their life on the water, and they are scared to death. As we read further in verse 5, we see that the very thing that had value and was paying their way to stay in this business was the very thing that they were throwing overboard. Get rid of the cargo, get rid of the cargo. And then as we read down in verse 7, as they're going around addressing each of the people and finally waking up Jonah and saying, why is this trouble? In other words, you could ask them, is this a great day? And they would say, no. This is a day of severe trouble in our lives. They thought they were going to lose their lives. And finally in verse 9, notice it comes around to God. They ask Jonah, who are you? And he identifies himself as a Hebrew, one that serves. Now think about their understanding of paganism. They believed in kind of a God for everything, or at least a lot of those that were paganists did. And so imagine what they thought whenever he says, I serve the God who created the seas. Oh, can you imagine how they must have became so sorely afraid? You mean your God is the one that's making all of this happen? Let's go to the next screen and let's ask this question. What really was the problem? Was the problem that a terrible storm was brewing? Was the problem they were in a boat that was too weak? Was the problem that they were just around people that weren't courageous? Those were fearful men. If those men would have been braver, uh, Jonah would have never had the problems he had of being thrown down overboard. Was the problem the loss of property? Was the problem simply, this is a troubled day? Or, what's the problem, God? God, you're doing it again. You're a problem in my life. Really, what was the problem? If you have your Bibles open, I'd, I'd like for you to read with me. And if you don't, you can look here on the screen. Jonah, the first chapter. I want you to notice 11 and 12. And in just a moment, we're going to read a phrase that if you mark in your Bibles ordinarily, and I hope you do, it's a great way to study. I'd like for you to underline this phrase in just a moment. Notice the problem. And this is kind of, in, in just a phrase, this is chapter 1 of Jonah. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. That is the theme of chapter 1. Jonah, why are you here in the middle of a storm of a boat that's breaking up, cargo's being thrown overboard, experienced men are shaking in their shoes, there's trouble everywhere, and now they're even questioning your God. Jonah, why is all this happening? He doesn't say, it's the storm, it's the boat, it's your fear. He owns up to it and he says, i tell you what the problem is. It's me. God gave me an order and I turned my heart against God. I was prejudiced against my enemy, Nineveh. And because of my disobedience to God and my prejudice against others, all of these are issues of the heart. He says, because of me, because of the problems I'm having in my heart, here are the problems that are brewing on the surface. Now, I'm not saying that every problem you and I have in our lives is directly related to something in our heart. Because you see, sometimes we experience the result of other people's problems because of things in their heart. 
Does that make sense? But please realize this. I have to stop and ask myself, is my heart right? And if my heart is not right with God, I can never expect things on the surface to be calm. Things on the surface to be right. Chapter 2. The first chapter ends with him saying, throw me overboard. The Lord prepared a large fish, swallowed him, and now he's in the belly of the fish for three days. But you know what happens? He stops thinking about himself, and he starts thinking about God. Will you read with me these three verses as we just select these three and maybe a fourth one out of the second chapter? Notice as we read verse 1 of the second chapter. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. You see, the first chapter, he didn't want to know anything of God. Instead of wanting to be drawn to God and obedient to God, he wanted to run from God. Things are turning around. Now his heart is saying, I need God again. Let's skip down and read verse 7. And this is the theme, I believe, this phrase in verse 7 is the theme of the second chapter. Notice he says, when my soul fainted within me, here it is, I remembered the Lord and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Look at verse 9. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Chapter 1, Jonah, what's the problem? It's me. Chapter 2, things are better now. He's ready to serve God. He's ready to go to Nineveh. He's ready to preach the gospel. Why did all of this change come about? I remembered the Lord. Friends, I know that is basic, and I know that is as fundamental as it can get, but that is what Jonah is about, and that's what my life is about, and that's what your life is about. Do we want storms that are constantly brewing in our life, or do we want to find peace that passes understanding? Do we want hope of eternal life, or to lose that hope? It boils down to the times in our life where we say, it's all about me. Or when we say, I want to remember the Lord. I want to depend upon Him with a heart that is fully devoted. This morning, what is the best description of your life? Is the best description of your life one that remembers the Lord? A one that can say, I pretty much live because of me. If you've never been baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins, won't you consider this morning, now please listen to this. I know many of us have heard this invitation many times, but please listen to this in light of this lesson. Won't you do something this morning that will probably be one of the hardest things you're ever asked to do? Deny self and come to God saying, God, to the best of my ability, I want to put your will before my will for the rest of my life. We're not perfect, but that's what we strive to do. We ask the Lord, Lord, what's your will? I want to put you first. I want to be saved. And He'd say, be a believer that I am the Son of God, the Savior. He would talk about repentance, turning away from the world and to God. He would talk about not being ashamed of Him, but instead confessing Him. And He would talk about being baptized into Christ, into Him, for the remission of those sins coming out of that water as a new creation, a new creature, ready to live for God instead of self. 
If you haven't done that this morning, won't you make that wonderful move this morning in your life? If you have done that, but yet somewhere along the way, you have become separated from what you ought to be, and more of the emphasis is on you now, and less of the emphasis is on God, and you want to leave here this morning turning that back around and placing the emphasis where it ought to be. You see, so oftentimes, the heart of our problem is the heart. It's just not where it ought to be. And the reality is, that ought to be the home of God. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. This morning, if you can't say Christ is living in you, don't leave here in that condition. If you need to confess sin and pray forgiveness, if we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.